0: Um, this uh, session is Can We Provide Vaccines for the World? Um, We have a fantastic panel for you today of really some of the leading thinkers in the world who are involved in these issues. My name is Peggy Clark. I'm the Vice President of Policy Programs here at the Institute and the Executive Director of Global Health and Development. Um, we're really pleased, we've seen a number of you come to our Global Health track, which is here the, at the Ideas Festival for the first time this year, so we feel like giving most valuable participant passes out, because there's some of you who have come to all of our sessions and we're very pleased. So it's my pleasure to introduce Lyndon Haviland, who is um, a nationally re- re- recognized expert in strategic communications for health. She was the COO of the uh, uh, Legacy Foundation um, and was uh, very involved in the Extraordinary successful effort around public education around tobacco. She's um, our Aspen Senior Global Health Fellow, so I'm pleased to say she works with us on a number of issues that we work on at the Aspen Institute in Global Health. And she's also currently working with um, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon on his particular uh, initiative on maternal and child health this year. Um, So Lyndon, with that, thank you very much, and we look forward to hearing your questions, which we will save time for uh, at the end of the session. Thanks, Peggy. It's it's a pleasure to be here. And it's really exciting, actually,
1: to be joined uh, with this distinguished panel to talk about vaccines. I confess when I, um, and we're going to get to this, uh, I confess when I was asked to do the panel on vaccines, I thought, what's new? I mean, There's nothing really exciting about vaccines. Little did I know. So these guys are going to excite you, educate you, and hopefully make you into the huge advocate that we need you to be to um, help us produce more vaccines and get them out to the world. So without further ado, what I want to do is thank them for joining me and thank Peggy and the Aspen Institute for giving us an opportunity to have this conversation. And I'm going to introduce each of the panelists. I confess, I just introduced Chris, so I'm going to say it all over again, which is is Chris Elias is and doctor he is the president and ceo of path that operates in more than 70 countries chris has been recognized for his way of thinking he is an innovative thinker about private public partnerships one of the things that we heard here at the aspen institute um ideas festival is one of the reasons we don't have enough vaccines is the market incentives don't line up the people who need vaccines are poor, they're not going to pay, and Chris is going to tell you why that's just flat out wrong. Chris has, an in, has built his institution, he has quadrupled the budget, and while he's done that, he's gone from a smaller number of staff to a large staff. And He says the most important thing in any institution is the people, and so we couldn't agree with him more. Next to him is Jeff Sturgio. Jeff is one year, almost to the day, in his new job as um, the head of the Global Health Council. But he's not, a, he's not an immunologist. He's not a vaccine specialist. He's not even a doctor. So <laughs> you might ask why he's here. He's actually the first, ever <laughs> he's, he's the first ever archivist for the Merck Company. That was his first title, archivist. And he is a historian by training. And now he is the head of the Global Health Council, and he's going to help us understand what can we learn from history that we should pay attention to. And the man who probably needs no introduction, um, Dr. Seth berkeley Seth and I have uh, been traveling parallel paths for quite some time, but Seth is actually kind of an interesting character. I want to actually give you a little qu- quote from him. It's a little frightening. Um, actually. He is the president and CEO of the International AIDS Vaccine Institute. He believes, he is a passionate believer, each one of these guys is a passionate believer in vaccines, and he believes that in our lifetime, in very short order, we're going to see a vaccine for HIV and AIDS, and certainly I hope he's right. He's worked all over the world. He actually, um, Francis Mothwa is here, Frances, he, um, Seth was the person who helped designed the first AIDS surveillance system for Uganda. He has been at the forefront of the fight against HIV, and he's gonna help us understand what the next frontier is. So with that set of introductions, I'm gonna to turn to our, historian, our resident historian and archivist to help, help us set the floor. What vaccines are, one of those rare things, they're kind of a silver bullet. And when, what Seth says is when a vaccine works, it's like a whisper. So tell us about vaccines and why should we care?
2: Well, uh, I'll be glad to try, and uh, I'll try not to bore you with all the details of history. I know a lot of people's eyes glaze over when you start to talk about it. I should add, also, I have some experience in global health, so. <laughs> but, but we'll see. Just a little.
1: No, he also ran the Merck Foundation and has been really a, a leader in corporate social responsibility. And Merck is one of the companies that really has pushed the envelope in corporate social responsibility, uh, making commitments, holding those commitments, even when it wasn't um, good in the marketplace. And so Merck is often held up as an excellent example of corporate citizenship.
2: So, um, you know, vaccines are really one of the most uh, successful public health in- interventions in history. Um, and most of what's happened in terms of improving coverage and discovery of new vaccines that are dealing with some of the diseases that were uh, the biggest killers has happened in our lifetimes. So what we're really seeing is a tremendous acceleration both of the invention of new new vaccines and the distribution of those vaccines to the people in need. I'll just give um, uh, four or five uh, quick points to set the stage for us. Um, In the last 35 years, we've really seen tremendous increase in coverage of immunization around the world, Uh, and the point that uh, I'll start with is the um, expanded program of immunization that the WHO led beginning in 1974, and at that time, for diseases like diphtheria, uh, pertussis or whooping cough, tetanus, and measles, uh, as well as polio and TB, the coverage in most developing countries around the world was less than 5%. Um, Now, 36 years later, as a result of the work that began with the EPI in 1974, we find on average that coverage is about 80%. So it's been a tremendous increase. And as a result of that work, um, we see uh, really um, uh, changes that have had tremendous social, economic, uh, and also political consequences as a result of that introduction of of immunization. I'll give just three examples. Um, Polio, uh, excuse me, let me start with smallpox. Um, Smallpox was actually eradicated in 1979 um, through a very uh, ambitious uh, and ultimately successful partnership of many public health agencies and governments and uh, NGOs all over the world, as well as the scientific and medical communities. Uh, But that was a disease that had killed literally tens of millions of people over thousands of years. Uh, It's now no longer a public health problem in any way. Measles, let's take that as an example. Deaths from measles now have declined by 75% in just the last 20 years or so. There's still too many, but that's uh, significantly less. It's about 200,000 a year now. And polio, um, there's also a global polio eradication initiative, uh, which has gone in the last 20 years from 1,000 infections a day around the world to less than five infections a day. So there's been almost a 99% decrease in the, inc- uh, in the incidence of polio. And in fact, there are only four regions in four countries, uh, around, or excuse me, regions of four countries uh, mm-hmm. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, and India, where polio is still uh, a, a public health problem. Um, So finally, uh, just to to wind the clock uh, closer to to the present, in 2000, uh, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization was created. Uh, That was one of the first major investments of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where they provided $750 million uh, to help the Gavi Alliance get off the ground. Uh, And what that did was enable, uh, there had been a plateau in the increase in coverage of immunization, uh, and the Gavi Alliance really provided new momentum to immunization, the immunization movement they focused on the 72 poorest countries around the world uh, and have also uh, made uh, a... a f- A focus of trying to get new vaccines to people as well. Because one of the challenges, and Chris and Seth can say more about this, is that some of the newer vaccines that have been introduced, take hepatitis, uh, a vaccine against hepatitis B, which was first introduced in the West uh, in 1982, it took nearly 20 years for that vaccine to reach developing countries, even though the incidence of hepatitis B uh, was probably worst in some of those countries like China. Um, And now, with the work that the Gavi Alliance has done, if you look at a new vaccine like the rotavirus, vaccines that were introduced a couple of years ago, the same year that they were made available in Europe and the United States, they were also available in countries in Central America and elsewhere in the developing world. So that's just one other indication of the progress that we've seen. In the last 20 years, as a result of all of this work, more than 20 million children's lives have been saved. Uh, and now there are probably about two and a half million children's lives saved in developing countries every year from the uh, the basic vaccines against uh, Uh, diphtheria, uh, pertussis, tetanus and measles Um, So that's just tremendous progress uh, as a result of this global partnership. Um, Just one thing, though, that I know we'll spend more time on in the rest of the session is that there's still a lot more work to do because there are probably still more than two million children who die every year of vaccine-preventable illnesses who don't yet have access to these vaccines. And just to put that in context, that means that in the time that we're here for this session, more than 300 children will die of a vaccine-preventable illness.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Seth, he mentioned new vaccines, trends in vaccine science. Uh, You're at the forefront of that, and one uh, article I saw that quoted you, you said the science is breathtaking, so take our breath away.
3: Well, let me start and go back a little bit to what Jeff said, and then I'll, and I'll move into new vaccines. Um, and, and what's extraordinary is that people don't value vaccines. That's why the whisper is an important you know, issue. So most people here don't worry about smallpox. They don't have to worry about smallpox. Last, yet, last century, half a billion people died of that disease. Now my wife, who's sitting in the front row as a physician, she's never seen a case of measles, she's never seen a case of tetanus. These are terrifying and horrible diseases. And one of the problems we have is because people aren't afraid of these diseases anymore, they become afraid of vaccines and the rare side effects. People are are going without vaccines, having their children go without, without vaccines. And what we're beginning to see is the immunity that exists across the population, it can be logical to do that. If you have 100 children going to school and 99 of them get immunized against a disease, you don't have to immunize your child because that child's not going to get it because it's not going to spread. But when it gets down to 90 or 85 or 80, then you have enough susceptibles that the diseases can spread. And we're seeing right now diseases like pertussis taking off in, in, uh, in, in California. We're seeing outbreaks of measles in the UK, around the world. So I hope we come back to that because this denialism is a huge problem of the amazing things that have happened with existing vaccines. Um, vaccines, you know, for a while, were a terrible business. They were um, there was huge liability risks associated with it. They were commodities. They were really cheap. The, the the six vaccines that that Jeff just talked about cost less than a dollar, and so industry wasn't investing a lot of money in it. In fact, we had a huge consolidation of of uh, vaccine producers in in the United States and around the world. What's happened since then is um, there's been a turnaround. There's been insurance schemes for liability, and there have now been some billion-dollar vaccines. And this is the hottest area in the pharmaceutical sector. A number of large companies, actually, best-performing units are in vaccines. The combination of that and the amazing advances that have occurred in biological sciences have allowed us now to come up with with really breathtaking new ways to approach vaccinations. And this is both for new diseases, like HIV, Uh, malaria isn't a new disease, but new technologies are being used on it, but also for old vaccines. And and hopefully we'll talk a little bit, for example, about flu, which the current vaccine that you all got was made in 1938. It's a terrible technology, it's a good vaccine, it's a terrible technology. Using new technologies, though, we can make that vaccine much faster, much cheaper, and and make it around the world, and that's what we need to do. So I, I suspect you want me to say something about HIV. Um, what's interesting is that HIV is the most difficult, perhaps, of all pathogens that we've had to deal with, and for lots of reasons. It's a retrovirus. It, 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 it has to um, uh, go backwards in its, in its process of reproduction, and it has all kinds of errors. So there's a lot of mutagenesis, there's a lot of different strains that are out there. Each person makes a billion new strains a day when they're infected with it. So, big problem with variability, but also a big problem because the the, the virus itself coats itself with sugars, makes it hard for the immune system to see. And what's happened over the last period of time this last year is we've had the first vaccine that has shown uh, effect in humans, albeit a modest effect, And and as importantly, people have discovered antibodies that neutralize all the strains of HIV. And if you saw the Wall Street Journal um, on on Thursday, it was another announcement of these and with those new targets. So what we've got now for HIV is, you know, fabulous targets to go after with an understanding that they are conserved and that these are things we can go, you know, uh, produce vaccines for. So stay tuned. We're going to see a lot of exciting science.
1: Great. but where science hits the road is sometimes in the places where path works. Path works in over 70 countries. You have offices, you have staff all over the world, and you often sit at the intersection of civil society interaction with the private sector and with government. So tell us a little bit about what the role for each of the different players is, both in vaccine production and then in developing the systems to get it out. And if, and if you have time, could you also tell us how do we create a demand for vaccines I mean, we're pushing them out, but how do we actually develop a demand so that there is a ready audience waiting for these new vaccinations?
4: Uh, Maybe just to take off on a point that Seth made, you know, he talked about how in the last decade we've seen a couple of blockbuster vaccine sales. I think we have to realize that those sales, the HPV vaccine, the the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, are blockbusters because there are markets for them in this country. There's another class of vaccines for which, which are really only needed in poor countries, and like malaria, regional uh, vaccines for Japanese encephalitis and meningitis A, where the market fails, where there's the companies don't have sufficient incentive to invest their R&D efforts. And the approach is somewhat different, depending on which one you're taking. So on HPV, for instance, we didn't have to, we, the global public sector, didn't have to... Explain HPV. uh, uh, Explain HPV. Human papillomavirus, which is the virus that causes uh, cervical cancer. um, uh, We didn't have to invest in the development of that vaccine because there was a big market for that vaccine in rich countries. Companies developed it on their own. They're, they're marketing and selling it um, uh, in the U.S. and Europe and Japan, and they're making quite good profits. But then they realize that 85% of the disease burden from cervical cancer is actually in the poor countries. And so they're partnering with us on figuring out how to introduce that vaccine in the developing world. There, for other vaccines, those, like, like malaria and meningitis, really the development has to be... Um, done through public-private partnerships. We learned, I think, historically um, that if we, the public sector tries to do it itself in an academic laboratory or national laboratory, it can sometimes get done, but it takes years. So the innovation of the last decade or so has been to use public sector resources and leadership in partnership with companies to harness their innovation capability to these neglected diseases and by sharing the costs and reducing the risks we can incent them to participate in the discovery of these new vaccines. For those vaccines that are needed in poor countries, demand generation isn't the biggest problem. So if you go to the 21 countries of the African meningitis belt where they have annual epidemics of of, uh, meningitis, which is an inflammation of the covering of the brain, that in a bad season affect one in a thousand people under the age of thirty. Uh, if you go there and say we can develop a vaccine for this, they uh, they say there'll be no problem for people to take that up because it disrupts not only does it you know kill ten or twenty percent of the people who get it and cause de- uh, deafness and other neurological uh, sequelae and in many of the others, but it actually shuts down the health system in places like Burkina Faso for two or three months a year as they chase the epidemic. So the demand isn't as big of a problem. It's really about how do we form the right partnerships to quickly, as quickly as possible develop these vaccines, because the market's going to fail. So even though in the multinational pharmaceutical industry, the vaccine business has become a much better part of their business, that's only for the vaccines that actually have a market in the in the in the West. For the for the places where it, the vaccines are really only needed, m- malaria. Forty percent of the world's population lives in areas with malaria transmission, but they're the 40, poorest forty percent of the population, and the companies just aren't going to do it on their own.
1: Jeff, let's talk about companies. You, um, in your distinguished career, career at Merck, you were at the forefront of looking at these opportunities for straight philanthropy. Opportunities for partnership and the opportunities for independent research and development from your perspective in the current status of vaccines what do you, what would you say to companies about the future as described by chris
2: well it's um, you know this is an interesting set of questions because I think that you know I agree with most of what Chris said, but I think there's another way of looking at uh, at the um, discussions around market failure because you know, what you might say is that that's market failure seen from the perspective of us in developed country markets. But I think what's interesting and, and what we've seen over the last uh, 10 or 15 years in particular is that there are companies developing in, in emerging markets themselves that are beginning to take on some of the, the uh, burden of of uh, at least manufacturing and distributing these vaccines. We, you know, we'll come back to the question of R&D. Um, but, uh, you know, for instance, there is a, uh, a network of developing country ma- vaccine manufacturers with about 20 companies in places like India, China, Brazil, uh, and Korea who are now uh, supplying uh, three-fifths of the vaccines uh, that are used around the developing world uh, and, in fact, a third of the vaccines that the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization purchased a couple of years ago. So, th- so the picture is already changing. It's not just the big five. There's one thing that um, uh, some of you may be aware of is that there really are only five multinational vaccine manufacturers of any consequence in the world. Uh, That's Merck, Sanofi, uh, Pasteur, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, uh, Pfizer, which just recently bought Wyeth, uh, which had had been one of the major manufacturers up to then, and, and Novartis. So it's those five companies in the developed world, and then you have this emerging network of other companies that are getting engaged in vaccines. So one of the Questions that I think that major pharmaceutical companies who are in this space should be asking, as well as the companies in emerging markets who are already seeing the opportunity is, what will the world look like 20 or 30 years from now? And what will the markets look like 20 or 30 years from now? So it's certainly true, um, you know, as Chris was suggesting, if we tried to approach this challenge of uh, discovering, developing, and delivering the vaccines that are going to be needed by um, by the world's population 20 or 30 years from now, the way that we've approached it up until now, uh, it would not be a pretty picture, and we'd still have tremendous gaps. But if we start thinking about ways of distributing the manufacturing, distributing the R&D, distributing it to the places where people really need it the most, and to think of new ways of solving those problems so that you don't have uh, the kind of overhead that a global manufacturer has, but you can operate uh, still providing high-quality vaccines, but doing it in a way that costs much less uh, and is much more flexible and adaptable, I think you'll have a different, uh, res- uh, a different response. And then one last point, because I want to come back to the big companies, which is you know, the sort of environment I know best. Um, one of the other things that's been happening recently is that most of the major pharma companies, and the five that I mentioned or certainly uh, fall in this category, are beginning to realize that the markets that they could depend on in the past, in the United States, in Western Europe, and Japan, um, are no longer going to provide the growth that they've always depended on. And if you look at uh, you know, the Economist Intelligence Unit or any other number of other uh, studies that have been done, 15 years from now, uh, the growth is going to be, uh, will continue to be in places like China and India and Brazil and Russia and Korea and Turkey and, you know, these are markets that the pharmaceutical industry really wasn't engaged in uh, very much 20 years ago. And this has come up in a number of the sessions here. I mean, we heard uh, this morning uh, um, uh, in the session with David Rubenstein and David Hale and Alan Greenspan, you know, uh, most of them were talking about China and India as where they're going to be putting their money. Uh, and the same thing's true of major pharmaceutical manufacturers. So what we haven't seen yet uh, is the out- the practical outcome of that uh, shift in, uh, in uh, you know, sort of vision of what the future of the industry looks like and where the future opportunities are. So I'm actually optimistic that the market failures we'd seen in the past are not likely to continue to be there, not just because pharmaceutical companies are going to start looking at these other countries as major markets, but because of the ingenuity of the people who are already in those markets who we've already begun to see are taking advantage of those opportunities.
5: If I can just jump in.
2: So one of the interesting
3: questions is how do you deal with the incentives around that? Um, Most of the innovation these days, not not as true in in, in vaccines, but certainly in drugs and more and more in vaccines, is in smaller companies, in biotech companies. And and how do we get them to focus on diseases of the developing world? And even if you were to leap, I mean, it's it's counterintuitive, but you go to India and you look at a company there and say, what do they want to focus on? They're going to focus on diseases of the West, and they're going to focus on trying to create products that can be used in the West or in their middle class to upper class populations because they're the paying ones. So there's not a natural incentive for them to look at diseases of poverty either. So what you need are new in- mechanisms for incentives. One is thinking about a worldwide approach. In the past we've had a mindset that said let's look at you know, high pay low volume as a business model as opposed to trying to have very high volume you know, low margins and, and you can shift that mindset. The other is beginning to create innovative financial features. And so A few years ago a a concept was floated of creating an advanced purchase mechanism. Initially the talk was to use it for something like HIV where you could argue we put incentives in place to engage industry. People felt that was a little scary, it was perhaps too too long a timeline, you wouldn't prove that it worked. They ended up using it for pneumococcal disease, which you know, it was something that we, people knew it was coming down the pike and, and, and knew how to do it. And what they, the way they set it up is they put a large pot of money out there that could then subsidize the purchase of it at the beginning so that, that um, manufacturers would make their money back up front And and in trade for that, they would guarantee a low price going out. And by creating that type of mechanism, you you take the balloon of profit that companies would normally get, you give it up front, you give some certainty, thinking of innovative ways like that to engage on diseases of poverty or on vaccines that are needed in places that don't have natural markets, but over time may create enough of a market, enough of profitability to make it worthwhile are the types of innovations we need, not just in science, but in policy.
1: Um, Bill Gates has announced that this is the decade of vaccine, and he's putting $10 billion billion beside it. So, Chris, what are we going to see in this decade of the vaccine?
4: I think we're going to see a a breathtaking science, as Seth said, Um, and a lot of new products that are designed appropriately for... Um, some of the important diseases of the poorest countries. And so maybe just to build on Jeff and Seth's comments, you know, I agree with Jeff that there's a a growing interest among the multinationals in the emerging markets. That will lead them to target some diseases they might not have historically that are prevalent in those middle-income countries. We see Sanofi doing that with dengue fever. But for diseases that are in the poor countries, it's going to be a long time before they get there. So, and, and so one of the things we've done at PATH is to use a public-private partnership model harnessing that innovation capability of these emerging countries in India and China where they're interested. You know, I think you're right, Seth, in the long term they're going to be interested in products for Western markets where they can make bigger margins. But right now they're interested in doing creative public-private partnerships to build their capacity because they don't have the installed R&D base of the multinationals. So for instance we did a project over the last 9 years to develop a low-cost meningitis vaccine for those 21 countries in the African meningitis belt. You know the hyperendemic countries are Niger, Chad, Burkina Faso, Mali, Northern Nigeria at, at you know average GDP is $250 per person per year, less than a dollar a day. So we started and this was funded Partnership of the World Health Organization and PATH, funded by the Gates Foundation. Our first step was to ask the public health officials in those countries, "What you know, if we, if we could develop a vaccine, what would it need to look like? And they said, the only thing worse than not having a vaccine against this terrible disease would be to have a vaccine and not be able to afford it. So we think that in mass immunizations, we need to be able to, to have a vaccine that costs less than 50 cents a dose. Because in Burkina Faso, the health budget is $6 per person per year. So they they were willing to put a twelfth of their health budget to buy this vaccine. But they, they said, if it's $3, we won't be able to afford it. So we then went to the multinationals. And most of them said they weren't interested. One said they could. The best they could do was $4 a dose because they didn't want to have to redo the factory. We hired a bunch of retired industry people who said, if you optimize the process and use the lowest cost ingredients, you theoretically could make this vaccine at $0.19 a dose. And so it was theoretically possible, but none of the multinationals wanted to do it at that price because it would have required redoing factories in that. So we went to the Serum Institute of of India, which actually makes seventy percent of the world's measles vaccine now, and did a public-private partnership with them where we transferred the technology, we licensed the intellectual property out of the NIH, sublicensed it to the Serum Institute of India, provided all the technical assistance for the technology transfer, and in our agreement, they guaranteed to produce at least twenty-five million, of, uh, 25 million doses a year, at a guaranteed price of forty cents a dose, and that that. Uh, vaccine was approved by the Indian Regulatory Authority in just January, and just two weeks ago was pre-qualified by the World Health Organization, which clears the way for its introduction this September. We're going to introduce 28 million doses in Mali, Niger, and, uh, and Burkina Faso uh, this September, three months after the vaccine was approved. So goodbye to the 20-year delay, you know, um, but you need that kind of creative partnership. They were interested They're going to make a profit even at 40 cents a dose, Um, but they didn't have the installed R&D capability, so they needed the public-private partnership. They needed the funding provided by the Gates Foundation, the support provided by the WHO and PATH to be able to develop that vaccine. Now, 10 years from now, they're going to have that capability, and that's where we've got to fix these incentives so that they're not then using that capability to make cancer drugs for Chicago, they're still working on diseases that are important in poor countries.
1: Great. I'm going to remind people that we do have uh, microphones, and we're going to turn to the microphones shortly. But Seth, um, you work on an AIDS vaccine, and you are um, working in 25 countries. Given what he just said about R&D capacity, um, building local capacity, the future, tell me what what comes to mind when you're thinking about all of those in terms of both the AIDS vaccine and what's next?
3: Well, I mean, I, I agree with Chris. It's critical to use local capacity. And so if you ask how these new in- innovations have occurred, it's been a really interesting process. It's required really good science in, in the, at the country level. It's required um, uh, scientists around the world to engage, the best scientists. It's also in- it required engaging companies. And as Chris has said, we work in the public-private partnership model. And for us, it wasn't only engaging companies that were the likely suspects, we had to go out and create a new mechanism to go after co- companies that were not working in the HIV vaccine space. And the reason is, is that we needed to break through technologically. We needed to take ideas that were in cancer, to take ideas that were in antibody production, and bring those to the problem. Now each one of those sound like simple solutions, but putting them all together in real time to make this happen is really where the innovation is. It's these new creative networks of innovation that that Chris has talked about. And so right now we're working with companies in Japan who have vaccines and companies in the Netherlands. We're working across Africa with scientists who are doing important work. We have a laboratory in India that's doing modeling of these antibodies and medicinal chemistry. Why India? Because India had a lot of medicinal chemists because for a long time their business was Uh, reverse engineering things so they could get around patents and make you know medicines. They can't do that anymore now that they're part of the uh, new trade system so we said well why don't we go back and use some of these people. It's this type of innovation that needs to occur and I absolutely agree with Chris because there is a hunger in those places to say how can we make the technological leaps. Um, Of course if you go to a company in the United States um, and look at who's actually working in those companies it's mostly the diaspora from India and China and other places and, and they're on their way back and so we're seeing a real transition time that's occurring now that we hope to take advantage of.
1: Jeff, what, uh, you look like you want to jump right in there. Yeah, so.
3: no, let me,
2: I, I was just thinking, um, you know, to go back to how you introduced me as an historian. I, I tend to look at these trends in, uh, you know, in, in what's really new and what, uh, what, can we, what conclusions can we draw from this. It strikes me as interesting that what Seth and, uh, and Chris have been talking about is really one of the benefits of globalization mm-hmm. because these partnership networks would be impossible if we weren 't able to have the kind of you know, ready uh, mobility of people between india and the u s or between China and the u s and going back and forth you know if there weren 't uh, the ability to tap into information that 's developed elsewhere and, and uh, put to use um, you know, put it to use in places like Niger and else uh, you know the other countries that are affected by meningitis so you know that 's a real innovation in the way that vaccine uh, discovery development and, and uh, distribution has been done in the last thirty years these partnerships. Uh, among public and, and private agencies uh, is really an important um, innovation in organization of uh, of global health uh, activities, and it's one that's here to stay. I think that, you know, we'll no longer um, see the kind of uh, world in which, uh, for instance, 50 years ago when the first vaccines uh, Uh, against measles, for instance, the first successful ones, uh, were introduced entirely in one company uh, and, you know, from start to finish. Uh, That's unlikely to happen anymore because there's just too much knowledge uh, and uh, interest in all of these institutions. So working together, the whole clearly adds up to more than the sum of the parts. But,
3: But there is a downside, and the downside with those networks is the misinformation that flows. And and that is one of the scariest things of working in vaccines. Um, You know, we we might have had polio uh, eradicated by now, if not for misinformation about polio vaccines that had some communities stop vaccinating and then epidemics that spread. And, of course, today you can have breakfast in Nairobi, lunch in, you know, in in London, and dinner in New York, and and that's faster than the the incubation time of these diseases. So diseases can spread very quickly. And and the anti-vaccine movement is very scary. Indeed, because it's very hard to fight back when the information sources are blogs, you know, on the Internet and and there's no countervailing information.
1: We're going to go to a question, but then I'm going to ask you all to also um, you talked about the anti-vaccine movement. And, you know, we sometimes see religion and people um, talking about their freedom not to be vaccinated. And we see some very emotional arguments made. So I'm going to want you all to comment on that. But first, I'm going to turn to our first questioner.
4: Well, I I agree that the emotional part of the anti-vaccine is important. I I don't want to be preempting that discussion. Uh, But my question is more on technology. I've been reading recently about a different approach to vaccination that seems to me might transform just the technology of how we develop and deliver them, and it has to do with DNA-based vaccines, where essentially uh, you create a DNA molecule that represents whatever protein you want the body to make, it's injected in the body, the body makes the vaccine, and therefore you bypass a lot of of the work that we've had to do up to now. And I'm curious about uh, what the opinion of the panelists is. Is that kind of technology also going to help here in the next 10 years, or is that something that's still too futuristic?
1: Great, and we'll take the second question and then we'll let the panel respond.
6: Congratulations on your work uh, worldwide. If I can ask you a more local question. Um, SARS never got so off the ground, and the bird flu in the United States. But I remember thinking that we were extremely vulnerable, had it, because there didn't seem to be enough antibiotics around, and um, I was told that uh, the drug companies didn't want to do it because it wasn't uh, profitable enough and the shelf life isn't long enough. But how is it possible that in this country where government is supposed to um, protect the population, we're not doing anything about it? And, and can you influence that and help that?
3: Um, on, on DNA vaccines, um, you know, it's a very exciting technology. If we were mice, one, we would never get cancer, and two, we, DNA vaccines would work very well. Uh, they've worked. <laughs> Much better in the animal models and best in mice less good in, 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 um, in primates and, and, and the least good in humans. Now, there are a lot of techniques to try to make those better. People are using adjuvants, chemicals that can increase the power of those. People are beginning to ask, can you put them in nanoparticles? And if you do that, you change the way the immune system looks at it. People are using other types of viruses and, and ways to stimulate them. So I don't think that we see that dead, but they have not led to the promise you described, which is an easy way to move forward. And, and it really goes to a little to the second question, which is what we need are vaccines that you can have a technique that is worked out that we know is safe that you can basically drop a cassette in and, and in a way, that's what traditional flu vaccines are. Every year, there's a new strain. We put the strain in, a, as I said, a vaccine technology from 1938. Um, and, and if we could do that and have those approved ahead of time, then when new diseases appeared, we'd have the opportunity to be able to move it forward. And, and I think this is where technology is going to take us. And, and all I can say is stay tuned, because um, there's a lot of exciting new technology that's moving forward in that
4: area yeah I'd say in uh, to the DNA vaccine question in many of our portfolios, we have seven different portfolios of vaccine development on different targets. We're certainly looking at dna vaccines um it's It's true that the the mice lie um a lot um so the the uh it's it's hard to know, and in most of those disease uh, there are further advanced uh technologies that we're more certain will work, but we'll certainly keep working on the DNA vaccines. I think especially some of these delivery nanoparticles and that come along, there may be some breakthroughs there, but it's hard to know until it breaks through. Um, I think the issue around flu, I mean, there's, there's a couple of issues. One is around the drugs, and maybe, Jeff, since you were in a drug company, you can speak to that. The vaccine piece of flu is interesting because we're very ill-prepared for a serious pandemic uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is a, com- is a limitation in our production capability for flu vaccines. Um, there are 6.7 billion people on the planet, and I think the global capacity for production of flu vaccines is somewhere south of 1 billion. So one of the things we're working on in our flu vaccine program is novel production technologies that could be, you know, things like a disposable vaccine uh, factory, that could be transferred to the places, closer to the places where they need to be um, produced. To to develop in, c- using current practices, current production practices, and current regulatory standards to develop and qualify a new flu production factory takes about five years to bring a new factory on. And it's hard, the companies aren't going to make those investments for a theoretical possibility of a pandemic flu. One of the things we could do is actually increase our use of the seasonal flu vaccine. So it's a shocking number of, of Americans. I forget the figures. Maybe somebody else will remember them. Um, most people don't get the seasonal flu vaccine. It's a safe, effective vaccine, and, it will you know, we have 30,000 people who die from seasonal flu every year, it, and, and we underutilize that vaccine. If we used the seasonal flu vaccine more, um, that would provide the commercial incentive to build and sustain greater production capacity but until that happens it's going to be very hard to uh, and you can't really build a factory and not use it until you need it because then you've got to ramp it up you got to do the quality assurance Uh, you know so uh, building up our you know, perhaps coming up with better production facilities and more easily scalable and transferable facilities, that's probably the longer-term solution. But in the meantime, actually using the the vaccine we have for seasonal flu now so that we create the right business model for a greater global production. Because, you know, last year, had had the H1N1 vaccine, which was so easily transmitted, had the, the le- lethality of the H5N1 avian vaccine, we would have had a a global pandemic of you know crisis proportions and we would have had very little vaccine that would have left the rich countries to go to the poor countries who would have had most of the mortality N- none i mean in essence if you when the flu season
3: hit Basically, nobody in the developing world was vaccinated, and and the problem is, I mean that the vaccine current vaccine is made in eggs, and if by the way the avian flu was to kill the the, uh, the birds as part that made the eggs, you would have a problem. And the particular flu, the H1N1 for last year, it, it took about um, a point eight uh, of, uh, of of a dose per egg is what was produced. So think about that population of 6 billion and what and, and what it was like. And, and Chris is right, there just hasn't been the investments in new technologies even though they exist, but they will come, it's just gonna take some time.
1: Lori?
7: Hi, I I have two questions if the moderator will allow or I'll pick one. <laughs> Lori Get, Garrett. Lob us your two and we'll see what we do. Okay, um, the first question goes to Flu and is really a national security question. We cannot make enough vaccine now for flu for the whole world. And at some distant point in the future, we probably will have technology that will make it possible to make 9 billion doses for all of humanity. But we don't now, and many years are gonna pass before we get there. And in the meantime, countries are saying, well, then why should we share viral samples with drug companies and with WHO, if you're gonna make a vaccine out of it that we will never get, or that we're umpteenth on the list to get. Um, President Obama tried to short circuit that by announcing that 10% of the US vaccine supply during this last flu round would be distributed globally, but it didn't actually go into distribution until basically everybody knew the epidemic was over, so it was just getting rid of garbage. Uh, how do we get through this dangerous period? It may be five years long, it may be 20 years long, uh, where we do not possibly have equity of access. We have looming threat, bird flu ain't going away, and it continues to mutate. But we, we, we have great global tension around this. My, my second question is kind of similar, but it has to do with the drug industry. So you're telling us that the hope for the future is these new models of drug production and vaccine production coming out of places like India, um, possibly Thailand, China. We know the list. Um, And meanwhile, the the giant pharmaceutical industry as we know it continues to be a darling of the stock market to the surprise of everybody who knows anything about the industry because the industry is falling to pieces, completely falling to pieces. And here again, we have this possibility of an unknown length of years before this transition to some new model of pharmaceutical production will occur. How can we make it through this potentially very difficult time when we may not even have vaccine and drug in production for the rich world, much less for the poor?
1: Well... Thanks, Laurie. So um, I'm going to turn to our drug company ex-representative <laughs> and ask him to take the first crack.
2: Yeah. No, well, those are, those, as always, those are both very um, uh, perceptive questions from Laurie and, and they're not easy to answer. Um, I think, you know, I, I can't presume to speak on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry but I can just give you my personal opinion on what's going to happen. I don't think actually the industry is completely falling to pieces. Um, although, uh, you know, when you look at certain companies at certain times, you might get that impression. Uh, it's still largely a profitable industry. And what I think is going to happen, and the, the reason that I spent some time earlier talking about the transition in the global pharmaceutical market, is that the industry, um, although it takes a long time to move, and uh, someone in a session earlier today likened it to uh, the Titanic or a battleship trying to turn, um, eventually there is movement. And I think what's different now than uh, when you had the first wave of mergers about um, uh, 30 years ago in the, in the industry, or at least the first wave in my my experience, uh, is that you now have um, markets like China and India which are becoming competitors to the traditional multinationals. So that just changes the landscape in a way that um, we don't yet know how it's going to turn out. Uh, but as I said earlier, I'm optimistic that uh, that it's likely to to lead to uh, interesting and, and very uh, constructive new business models. So what will happen is that um, if we depend only on large pharmaceutical companies to solve the problems that you alluded to, we're in trouble. But because of the new competitors, because of all the kind of work that Seth and Chris have been talking about, there is just a lot of interesting things going on that are going to be successful in ways that traditional pharmaceutical um, business models aren't going to be successful. Uh, and people being uh, um, you know, smart will pick up on that. Investment will begin to flow to those new uh, new examples. And I think that you'll see a new equilibrium around uh, ways in which uh, we'll have more of the vaccines and medicines that we need for a larger part of the world's population. Um, you know, back to the, the first question. Um, I think that the the answer to that is going to lie in, in the same direction that I was just talking about, and, and I'm sure Chris and Seth have things to add here, too. But, um, you know, for instance, if you look at uh, the argument that Indonesia made about um, uh, sharing virus samples, um, you know, it's a reasonable question to ask. Why should we share them if we're not going to have any of the benefit of the vaccines that, that come from them? But the solution that the Obama administration uh, came up with, well, well, we'll put aside 10% of our... Of our production and make sure that that's available globally just begs the question because then you have to ask well who gets the ten percent so what will what the question back to Indonesia and other countries like that should be well you know. Why don't we be glad to work with you to develop capacity in your country to manufacture these vaccines? Um, And there are now, as I alluded to earlier, there are manufacturers who can provide that kind of technology transfer, um, some of whom are already in the countries that are going to be most directly affected by these epidemics. And I think a solution that takes all of the resources and assets that we have globally into account is more likely to lead uh, to... um, success than the way that we've been trying to go about this for, for decades. So Great. those are a couple of my thoughts.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Seth, um, when Lori teed up the question, she, she noted uh, flu as a potential national security threat. You also work, You work in HIV, which, given the epidemic rates in many countries in Africa, is also c- certainly a a security threat. So, can you talk a little bit about the the national situation with flu, but also kind of take it to the next level and talk about why why vaccine development is so important, and why if diseases like these spread, it really does threaten the future of peace and justice.
3: Well, to go back to to Lori's question, which is a great one. First of all, I think Indonesia is asking exactly the right question. The problem has been we have the technologies now to be able to make flu vaccine in larger quantities and faster. But when the panic occurred around avian flu, and then the question was, what do we do about manufacturing capability, people went back to egg-based because it's what they knew. They built the large plants. And now, with those large investments sunk, there's not as much interest in the innovation. And what what happened, which is really interesting, is that during the H1N1 crisis, a number of developing countries started to go down the pathway of new technologies, investing their own money and trying to accelerate them. As soon as the kind of threat passed, a lot of that money got pulled away. And so what I worry about is, in, in a bad economic time, is there going to be enough to carry it all the way through? Of course, Chris and others are working on it using not-for-profit dollars, but the fastest way to move this forward is when you have you know, multiple incentives, and what you'd really like are those countries in the South to be taking some of these innovative new technologies forward, rather than going back to the, like, like they used um, you know, with phones, jumped over hard wire and went right to cell phone technology. So that's, that's what we're hoping will happen. In terms of the national security question. Um, It is a huge problem. We didn't talk about, you know, HIV and drugs, but there's been a a remarkable response. The world has come together and and provided drugs for HIV in a way that's never been seen before. Um, Yet, at the same time, it is not a solution. We're never going to be able to get there. There are five new infections for every two people put on treatment, and viral resistance will spread. And so what you've got is a world where you can say, well, I, I live in the United States, I don't care about the rest of the world, but you have to. I mean, the reason we have uh, a resistant pneumococcus in the United States is because it came from South Africa. The reason we have, you know, uh, um, other diseases, you know, like that is because they're moving around. So from, from now on, it, it is, beware the country that thinks it itself can deal with these problems. We have to think of them in a new uh, global way. And of course, Laurie's been one of the great writers in bringing this to the world's attention.
4: Sophie?
8: Good afternoon. If you allow me, I have one comment and, and a question. The comment is about measles that was presented in the previous session on global health and, uh, and uh, a few minutes ago as a major success. Uh, and uh, it's, it's been a success, but I would like to uh, highlight the fact that in recent months we faced major outbreaks of measles in Malawi, in Burkina Faso, in Chad at the moment. And uh, it's not just about, uh, you know, a bad coverage, but it, it's also about uh, the efficiency of the vaccine that is available at the moment in these country. So together with meningitis and rotavirus and pneumococcal, there is definitely a need for a, a better uh, measles vaccine. And my question is about, of course, bringing down the cost of vaccines. So you've presented some alternatives, some options uh, like decreasing the cost of research and development, but also the advanced market commitments. But uh, we've learned through the fight against HIV-AIDS that generic competition uh, was also you know, one of, one of the best ways to break down the cost. And recently in the health bill, there was a a provision that was passed almost unnoticed uh, that allowed uh, greater exclusivity, 12-year exclusivity on biologics. So what I would like to know is, what's your position on this provision? And do you think that uh, in the field of vaccine, there is also a potential for generic competition? And how does it go, you know, it's so incompatible. If you believe it's possible, then this provision is gonna be a major barrier to to better access to these uh, vaccines. Great. Thank you. Chris.
4: Yeah. Um, I think that um, uh, our experience shows that competition um, helps to drive down prices in the vaccine markets like it does in other markets. Um, and the challenge is that, from an intellectual property point of view in vaccines, the patent, unlike drugs, the patents are much less important as the, the core intellectual property is more the know how, the process development the 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 things that are much harder to transfer. Um, what we've been doing, part of our programs, and I mentioned we have several different vaccine development port, pro, portfolios, there are now licensed pneumococcal and rotavirus vaccines. Um, we're working on lower cost versions of those with Indian and Chinese and Brazilian manufacturers. It's not exactly analogous to um, the generics competition in the drugs market that we've seen so b- help bring down prices in ARVs so effectively. But it's similar. So we're basically uh, working with um, and one of the things, so let me just, just give you a little detail about our rotavirus project. The NIH developed a rotavirus um, uh, vaccine approach that's similar to the and, and, and looks to be just as effective as the, the approach that the two companies that are currently marketing rotavirus vaccines have. They've given six non-exclusive licenses to six different companies. We are we're creating what we call an enabling platform, basically a set of tools that will help all six of those licensees of the NIH strain of the rotavirus vaccine to be successful. It involves formulation expertise, packaging expertise, Cell um, culture banks the basically a, a set of enabling tools that will help the holders of that non exclusive intellectual property succeed and, they, and we're basically making it available to all six of them and hoping that they'll compete to produce uh, effective vaccines at reasonable cost. We're also working with two of those six companies, one in India, one in China, in a more intensive public-private partnership similar to what I described with meningitis to help accelerate and ensure their success. So I think the general idea that competition and lower cost production of the technologies will help to produce more affordable products is Correct. Whether it will require the same types of intellectual property arrangements as we've seen with drugs, I think it has to be modified. So the way we think about the intellectual property is that it's a tool to an end. And in some cases, um, uh, just putting it in the public domain, other cases, Keeping it, protect it, uh, protected and then licensing it in a strategic way, so it varies a little bit vaccine by vaccine. But the general idea that we need more manufacturers, particularly in emerging countries, that can produce at lower uh, lower cost and therefore be able to sell at lower prices, is one that we
2: would support. I just add uh, two quick points to that. One is that. You know, the good news is that there are a a network of emerging manufacturers who can do the kind of work that Chris is talking about here, and I think that's a terrific example of how you can bring those uh, enabling technologies to enable them uh, to do a a much better job. The other thing I just wanted to add, um, and this gets back to Laurie's point about how the the multinational pharmaceutical industry is having uh, its challenges these days, one of the best assets that I think is available to help... um, Uh, in increasing manufacturing in in emerging markets in developing countries are the tens of thousands of engineers and scientists who are leaving the multinational pharmaceutical industry. In fact, I've come across in recent weeks... um, uh, someone who uh, was an engineer at my old company who's now gone off and set up his own company to do manufacturing in developing countries. Uh, and just as uh, Chris said earlier, that some of the uh, people you talked to at, at the big company said you could get the price down to 19 cents. That's exactly what he's trying to do, is to take things that he was working on in his earlier life and now doing the things that can bring the price down. Um, and there's also a group of uh, of chemical engineers and, and chemists um, who I met through the American Chemical Society, who had left the pharmaceutical industry and are now spending all of their time trying to improve the prospects for drug production uh, at high quality and low cost in Africa. So I think that's... Uh, there hasn't been that much attention to that, but I think it's an interesting uh, development that we'll see more Just to add one, one last
3: point, and, and, and Sophie, for me, uh, IP, is, as, as Chris said, is a tool. I think what we have to do is use advocacy to change the mindset. And the idea that a life-saving uh, vaccine would be brought out and made available in one country and the rest of the world ignored should never be allowed again and I would have thought that we had gotten there after HIV but you know HPV appeared and there hadn't been the rollout plans, the ideas, the way to extend it out and that's happening now but it's happening a number of years later and I think what we have to do is change that mindset and when we do that um, and we think about it then there can be ways to get it out to other manufacturers, there can be ways to have different pricing scales and so it can be done with a respective IP but um, it has to get out to the people who need it.
1: Great, thank you. We'll take our last two questions. Fra- uh, Francis first and then... Hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, we'll, and I'll ask them to make their closing remarks on that.
5: Yes, um, just to follow on, on all these uh, discussions. Um, during uh, uh, Two zero nine. I was the chair of the Independent Review Commission of Gavi, reviewing applications from countries for these vaccines. A lot of applications, especially for Rota, and, uh, and, um, uh, and 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 pneumo. I am told by Gavi now that they have no money to provide those vaccines for which uh, we worked very hard to, <laughs> to uh, recommend um, funding, and the committee uh, which I chaired has virtually been closed because Gavi um, doesn't have money to, to uh, uh, fund approved applications. How do we deal with that?
6: Oh, you want me to go ahead? And... Yeah, no. Okay, hi. I'm Carol Edelman from the Hudson Institute, and I publish an Index of Global Philanthropy, where we do a lot of writing on health programs as well. Um, my question is the this issue of substandard and counterfeit drugs, which is, um, can be as high as 30, 40, even in some countries, although there are not enough studies on it, as high as 50%. And yet, and if when you know you talk to people inside the World Bank and WHO, you hear some real horror stories of procurements that they've had come in with no documentation and no bioequivalence tests or anything. But it seems to me, I feel like in vaccines, you you have done a wonderful job. I mean, and I just wanted to ask, how have you done it? I mean, what kinds of quality control have you put in? And is there a chance that the rising tide will, you know, raise the other boats in, non, in non-vaccines? And maybe there's some great lessons learned there.
4: Yeah, well, I can start off maybe with uh, to uh, uh comment. I mean, I think you highlight a very important problem, which is that the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization has a $2.6 billion shortfall. Now, the, and they're out there actively raising funds to meet that shortfall. The good news is uh, that at the recent board meeting two weeks, three weeks ago, they did lift the uh, pause on funding the approved IRC-supported uh, um, uh, applications. They did, because they are short of funds, uh, put in place what is an, un- uh, an understandable but unfortunate restriction, which is that they're, they're, they've now told countries that they can only apply for one new vaccine at a time. And as you know, to, to rationally plan a, an immunization program, you want a five-year plan. You want to size your cold chain and your procurement logistics to all the vaccines you're going to put in. So it's, sort of, it, it's, it's not going to be easy for health systems to deal with that restriction, although the restriction is, is put in because they want to be able to fund more countries and not, you know. Uh, so it's, it's, it reflects their, their shortfall of funding. Personally, I think the way we can help mobilize resources for for Gavi is to use what would be a modest investment of Gavi resources uh, to help roll out the meningitis vaccine in West Africa because it's a limited number of countries. It's a guaranteed 40 cents a dose, and it can be done in mass immunizations. What Gavi needs is a demonstrable success. If they deliver that vaccine, and next year there 's no seasonal epidemic of of meningitis, they will have the success story and the support of the African leadership they will need to go convince donors to give them to replenish their their coffers so I think that 's one approach but that 's certainly one we 're advocating uh, with them. Um, the issue on on supply chains um, it has been less of a problem for counterfeiting because most of the way that poor countries that counterfeiting drugs is most common in the poorest countries, and the poorest countries generally get their vaccines through the UNICEF supply system and the warehouse in Copenhagen, which aggregates demand and does large tenders to drive prices down. That's being done in drugs through the Global Fund and others on more of a regional basis, and it is a model to emulate. The bigger challenge in vaccines is is that it you know they're so perishable and the cold chain requirements and that, which is also facilitated by having UNICEF do that that aggregated procurement.
1: Seth, um, you're an emotional guy. <laughs> we know this, um, and when we talked yesterday, we talked a little bit about the emotional backlash that and the the challenge of talking with someone who is absolutely convinced that you are trying to export autism to the world because you're a proponent of vaccination so what do we say to that
3: well we first of all you have to be unbelievably sympathetic to parents who have to deal with an autistic child and you know it's a terrible thing and of course the thing any parent asks I would ask is what did I do wrong and the problem is, is children get immunizations a lot along their their uh, childhood, and if, if a child, for example, was struck by lightning and, and he collected all the children that got struck by lightning, a certain number of them would have had vaccines within you know 48 hours of that strike. And, of course, people wouldn't make that connection, but the autism connection has been made and now is being, you know, pushed through by uh, generation after generation of people, yet studies have shown over and over that there is no connection. And so the problem is is how do you get people to believe data and science in this? And it goes back to the issue I I talked about before of the the problem of misinformation that exists out there. If you go and click on the web and look for vaccine information, one of the first sites you'll come to is a site that is very well designed and looks like all the other sites that are providing information but is coming out of the the group of parents who are concerned about these safety issues on vaccines. And this is where we've also had problems with the... um, issues of of trust in governance and international institutions because, again, you have governments doing the studies and certifying them. And so I think the real challenge is to get people to rethink. and, and and, And as long as we live in a world where people don't remember what disease was like without vaccines... We live in that threat, and you'd hate to see you know that to come back. But when people do have those outbreaks, when when the scare, like right now people are saying, well, you know, we we dodged the flu epidemic. Next time, you know, they shouldn't declare it an epidemic. They shouldn't make such a big deal about it. And as Nathan said on the last panel, they only had to dial up the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, lethalness the of the particular flu a little bit, and we would have had people clamoring on how come the governments were so slow? How come they didn't make enough vaccines? How come they didn't? So I think it's really a matter of of balancing those issues
1: and perhaps balancing uh, public perception and nimble strategic communications that can be trusted from trusted uh, sources. So please um, join me in thanking this lovely panel. Thank you.